0: and welcome to this episode of Thermonuclear Takes from Physical Attraction. Now, as a reminder, this is the type of bonus episode where we deal with some news stories that are on my mind, which are usually at least tangentially related to stuff that's been covered on the show. As such, it's a bit looser, it's a bit freer, I spend less time on the script, a bit briefer on the stories, and it's more topical and less timeless, but hopefully it provokes some interest and discussion. If you don't want to hear about stories in the news, and right now, who could blame you? Await a more regular episode right, there's loads of stuff that I've been wanting to get into, so let's get into it. And we actually have what I think is a pretty good news story to start up with, which I'm sure you'll all be happy to hear. First off, it's coming up to the five-year anniversary of the Paris Agreement, which was signed in December 2015. This is not just important for people who like calendars, though, because it relates to a rather dramatic pledge that has just been made. China, the world's largest CO2 emitter, has now pledged to get to net zero by 2060 in terms of CO2 emissions. And this is a pretty huge positive development in climate politics, In fact, Zeke Hausfather told Bloomberg's Climate News, if China is serious, this is the biggest climate news in a decade. So what's going on? A brief recap then on the Paris Agreement. Nearly every country on Earth signed up to the agreement, and it states a couple of things. It says, first, that we'll try and keep global warming to 2 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial levels. Once considered a dangerous upper limit for warming by people like Jim Hansen in the 80s, this is now the target we'll get there if we're lucky and if we try damn hard. Secondly, we'll pursue efforts to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which unfortunately I think is now very unlikely. And the Paris Agreement says that we'll do this by establishing, quote, a balance between anthropogenic sources and sinks of greenhouse gases in the second half of the 21st century. In other words, the goals of Paris, keep to below 2C and eventually have net zero emissions of greenhouse gases by the second half of the century, so any remaining emissions of greenhouse gases are cancelled out by negative emissions, these goals are clear. A brief reminder of why this is necessary, because I don't think that enough people really understand this. The amount of warming that we get is basically proportional to the cumulative CO2 that we have dumped into the atmosphere. That's why emissions reductions from the COVID lockdown basically don't matter that much. If our emissions fall by 25% in the lockdown, it just buys us three months every year that happens, if you see what I mean. It slows down the rate at which we're making the problem worse. That CO2 lingers for centuries and so will much of the warming. If you're seeing the damage from climate change already, urgent climate action is required to stop this from getting even worse. I hope that's clear. And equally clear then, to stabilise temperatures, emissions must go to net zero, so that we stop dumping extra greenhouse gases into that warming blanket around the Earth. And it turns out that these two goals of the Paris Agreement, to get to net zero by the second half of the century and to keep to below 2 Celsius, are linked by the science. Because basically, to get to 2 degrees Celsius basically requires us to hit net zero globally by the second half of the century, probably earlier rather than later in that. There are some details, of course, but if, if you don't do that, you basically don't have a prayer. However... What isn't in the Paris Agreement is the actual mechanism to get there. The Paris Agreement does not include legally binding targets that all add up to achieving these goals. Instead, the idea is to try and create something that will get around the rather thorny issues that have plagued international climate negotiations for the last 30 years. Rather than imposing legally binding targets on countries, countries make voluntary pledges. They're called nationally determined contributions. The idea here is that everyone's hand is shown at once. Everyone shows how willing they are to act on climate change. And this is supposed to avoid the free rider problem. So, for example, if only I act to cut emissions, it might cost me something up front. Although I would argue that in the long run, pretty much all of the actions that cut emissions end up being beneficial economically and in other ways, too. As we'll in fact see for China's pledge later on. So imagine I'm paying to cut my emissions. You might benefit from a more livable climate due to my actions without having to pay to cut your emissions. So there's a risk that every country waits for someone else to act, which is more or less what was happening. With Paris, the idea is that everyone sees the pledges that everyone else has submitted. Then there's supposed to be a ratchet mechanism. It's a bit like everyone in your house agreeing to contribute to a fund that will, uh, I don't know, pay for some upkeep or double glazing or something. If you see that your housemate is giving 30 quid, you might think, well, I should really match that. I see that you're doing a bit more to address the problem, and so I increase my ambition too. And that's the idea, is that these goals are supposed to get more and more ambitious over time. It's a virtuous feedback loop, supposedly, where every country raises the ambition of their pledges over time, and doing so means that addressing climate change is easier than they thought. The five-year intervals, then, are supposed to be when all the parties meet up and have a stock take. Every country evaluates how well it's done so far, and then hopefully raises their ambition. That was supposed to be taking place, well, roundabout now, in Glasgow, but COVID put the kibosh on the conference until next year, but it seems as if many of these pledges are still coming through. So the first round of pledges didn't add up to the Paris Agreement. In fact, if that first round of pledges had all been enacted, we would probably be looking at 2.8 degrees of warming or so, according to Climate Action Tracker. And this left us in a rather grim situation, Even if everyone fulfills their promises, they still won't be achieving what they all agreed to achieve. This is obviously not ideal. But in this most recent round of new pledges, we have a couple of major announcements so far, and they are ratcheting up the ambition on these pledges in recent months. So a while ago, the UK did this. Our pledge was to reduce our emissions 80% from 1990 levels by 2050, and now it's to get to net zero by 2050. The EU27, which currently emits around 9% of global emissions, is in the process of updating its pledge too. Its earlier pledge was to reduce emissions by 40% on 1990 levels by 2030. Now it's trying to ratchet that up, so instead of 40% it will be 55% reductions by 2030. I think right now as I'm saying this they may still be trying to get all the member states on board, but evidently it's a sign of increased ambition. The EU wants a goal of net zero by 2050 as well, with Poland currently holding that up. Now the big China announcement came on the 22nd of September, and it marks the first time that China has pledged to an explicit date for net zero. China accounts for 27% of world emissions right now. Previously, they had said that their aim was to peak their emissions by 2030, and to reduce the carbon intensity of their economy by about 40% by 2030. Now the carbon intensity of the economy is a measure of how much CO2 you're emitting per dollar of GDP you're producing. Obviously it's good if you can reduce this. It means that you are generally making more money in a less dirty and polluting way, and your economy is less destructive to the climate, which is good. But it's obviously not the same as actually reducing emissions. If you halve your carbon intensity, but double the size of your economy in a decade, you're emitting the same amount. And in fact, China has doubled the size of its economy in just the last eight or nine years. So that's not really an insane scenario where over the next 20 years they might half their carbon intensity and double their economy again. And if that did happen, then obviously they'd still be emitting the same amount as they do today, which isn't really progress. Obviously this pledge was something. It was better than uncontrolled emissions growth forever. China has historically emitted a lot less CO2 than the EU and the US. China has historically emitted 214 billion tons of CO2 compared to the US at 397 billion tons. Per person, They still emit less CO2 than the US, although more now than the EU does. So naturally, this is where you get into the thorny issues about what is to be considered fair. But with the old target, you could see the scenario where China's emissions grow with its economy only slightly offset by that economy gradually getting cleaner. They could peak by 2030 and then more or less stay the same for a really long time. And that would obviously be well within the target as it exists. Now, it's worth saying this is better than some of the worst case projections we've seen. RCP 8.5, the worst-case doomsday climate scenario, involves the planet's emissions increasing right the way up until the end of the century. It's hard for me to see how that happens in the way that they predict if China does peak its emissions in 2030. The progress that we're making already then is enough to render the worst-case scenarios unlikely to happen, and this is very good news because those scenarios are so hellish that it's hard to imagine the world reasonably making it through. For one thing, in those worst-case scenarios, places where billions of people currently live would become uninhabitable. We really, really need to avoid those worst-case scenarios however we can. But this new pledge, if fulfilled, would be better yet. If China gets to net zero by 2060, possibly within my lifetime and only 10 years after the UK is supposed to, then clearly their emissions will have to start falling sharply after the peak in 2030. It's hard to see how you get to net zero by 2060 if there's not a big reduction by 2040, for example. So it's obviously a much stronger pledge than the previous one because it has this net zero requirement and doesn't allow China to keep emitting forever. And this has pretty major implications for global temperatures, which we'll talk about later. This actually increases the number of countries that now explicitly have a net zero target date. The EU basically has one, many member states do already. The UK has one, so does Chile, Canada, New Zealand and South Africa. They're trying to get one through at the moment um, in Chile, Canada, New Zealand and South Africa. And California do as well. They're supposedly aiming to do this by 2045. This is good news, obviously, because without a date to get to net zero, you can't really have a plan. And then you can't really be that serious about meeting the Paris target, which, given that it's supposed to be an international agreement, isn't great. But of course, a lot of you will be thinking, these are just pledges, these are just targets. People make targets and promises all the time, especially in politics, and they miss them quite often too. They can be changed with a change of government or a change of circumstances. The Paris Agreement is voluntary. There are no sanctions if you miss the target, unlike a binding treaty. And given that no one who's in power now is expecting to be in charge in 2050 or 2060, as far as we know, when the targets are due to be met it might be politically very easy to set a target for decades in the future and then do nothing about it, particularly if it feels like your government might not last another six months right now. So there are obviously two layers to will the Paris Agreement succeed in keeping warming below 2 degrees Celsius. Layer number one is does every country's pledge add up to a reasonable shot at getting that ultimate goal there? The answer to that is probably still no, but we're getting closer now. According to the Climate Action Tracker, if everyone fulfilled their pledges, we'd be headed for around 2.7 degrees Celsius of global warming before China's new pledge. But with China's new pledge in place, that would be between 2.4 and 2.5 degrees Celsius. So in other words, this pledge does bring us closer to promises that at least add up to the Paris Agreement goals. Layer number two is, okay, how are the actual countries doing at fulfilling their pledges? Is their actual action and their actual plan for their economy consistent with this goal? And let me point out just briefly again why this is not at all trivial. If you want net zero emissions, that doesn't just mean that you have to close down the coal-fired power plants. It means every car on the road has to be zero emissions. It means every gas boiler you have has to be replaced by something that's zero emissions, and so on. Anything you can't avoid has to be made up with by negative emissions, which are often more expensive than just switching away from fossil fuels and are really only in their infancy at the moment. There's only a tiny amount of negative emissions going on anywhere. If you want net zero by 2050, you have to stop selling new fossil fuel cars by 2035 or so, or else people won't get full use out of them. That means you need your roads and your infrastructure ready for electric cars or fuel cell cars very quickly. It's 2020. If you're not thinking about the next 15 years of infrastructure that's going to be ready for, you know, a wholly electric fleet, then you're failing on your net zero target if it's in 2050. You better start building these things right right now. If your plan requires lots of negative emissions, as many countries' plans do, you better start building those right now if you want them to scale up in time. Even the UK, which argues that it is a climate leader, is not on track to meet some of its own future carbon budgets, according to the Independent Committee on Climate Change that reviews these things. So just pledging something doesn't make it so at all. Luckily, we do have a great website that does help us keep track of this, different countries' pledges and how well they're doing at fulfilling them. This is the Climate Action Tracker. This is a great resource, which I highly recommend. It tells you basically what each country has pledged and then assesses how close its policies are to actually fulfilling the pledge. And recently, it's also included updates on the COVID-19 and the green recovery from that. Here's what it said for China before they made their pledge more ambitious. Quote, China's COVID-19 response contains elements of a green recovery, but ultimately lacks the policies and direction to set China on a low-carbon trajectory. In the last few years, there had been hopeful signs that China's CO2 emissions were flattening. However, the emissions rose in 2018 and 19. They're likely to drop in 2020 due to the pandemic. China's coal activities remain a large concern and are inconsistent with the Paris Agreement. It would need to phase out coal before 2040 under 1.5C compatible pathways, but it appears to be going in the opposite direction. After lifting a previous construction ban on new coal plants in 2018, China has rolled back policies restricting new coal plant permitting in each of the last three years. By mid-2020, China had permitted more new coal plant capacity than in 2018 and 2019 combined, Bring its total coal capacity in the pipeline to 250 gigawatts and it had brought 10 new gigawatts of plants online. China has been going against the global shift away from coal and now possesses roughly half of the world's coal power capacity as well as coal-fired power plants in development. China is the world's largest financier and builder of both fossil fuel and renewables infrastructure worldwide. Of all coal-fired power plants under development outside of China, a quarter or 102 gigawatts of capacity have involved funding from Chinese financial institutions and or companies. However, COVID-19 has for now curbed China's investments on fossil infrastructure overseas, and its share of investment into foreign renewable projects has reached its highest ever levels. COVID-19 has increased uncertainty in the direction of China's emissions to 2030. In the upper bound under the COVID-19 scenario, in the upper bound of China's current policies under a COVID-19 scenario, The projections show China's greenhouse gas emissions would rise until 2030, although the rate of increase is projected to slow towards the end of the 2020s. In the lower bound, our analysis suggests it's possible that China's emissions have already peaked in 2019. Consequently, China is on track to achieving its 2030 peaking target and overachieving its carbon intensity and non-fossil fuel share nationally determined contribution targets without showing significant progression in its climate action. So what can we take from all of this? Well, it seems that China was very likely to meet their original target of peaking emissions. In fact, there was some evidence they may have been starting to peak or at least stop growing nearly as quickly before COVID. With the new ambitious target, they're now in the same position as a lot of countries. They have an ambitious target, and currently the policies aren't there yet to back it up. But we know that China has invested in truly massive-scale renewables projects in recent years. For China domestically, this isn't just a climate issue. Smog, principally from coal, is a major public health issue. Pollution contributes to millions of premature deaths a year, and frankly China knows that their productivity is going to be decreased if everyone has horrendous lung illnesses from the smog. China watchers will look to their next five-year plans to see whether new policies are being announced that are in line with this new, more ambitious target. Phasing out coal will be key, obviously. Another key, key point to consider with China is that through the Belt and Road Initiative, for all of its neo-colonial overtones that have been criticised, They are investing and financing massive energy infrastructure projects all over the world. So it would be key to look at that as well, because frankly, as well as what wealthy countries do, the way that poorer countries supply themselves with energy is absolutely crucial. If they build fossil fuel power plants to grow their economies, emissions are going to stay high, and then we'll have no hope of Paris. Wealthy countries decarbonising could be offset by fossil fuel growth in poorer countries then. If, however, many of these countries, often in areas where solar power makes a lot of sense, can move straight past our original carbonized industrial revolution and into a green one, it will give us a real shot at the Paris Agreement. One thing that I think is interesting to point out on this is that we have actually seen this sort of leapfrogging development occur in a number of different countries over the years. One example would be in terms of telecommunications infrastructure, right? It's not like... Uh, less economically developed countries went through a stage of having internet cafes and dial-up modems, or even home personal computers as the main way people access the internet. Indeed, in many places, people have just gone basically from not having a telephone connection to having mobile phones. They've skipped out that whole intermediate stage of development. So if you think of supplying energy and electricity through fossil fuels as being the intermediate stage of development for humans, and then the end stage being renewables... It is possible that these things can be leapfrogged by countries if we just choose to build this renewable low-carbon infrastructure in place as the first thing that's ever there. Since China is financing a lot of these projects in less economically developed countries, we need to keep an eye on whether they finance dirty growth or clean growth. As the Climate Action Tracker pointed out, they're the biggest funders of both renewable and fossil power worldwide. So how China deploys this soft power, this economic leverage in the world in the future, is going to be really important as to whether the world can get to net zero as well. But this is a point that I think applies beyond China, by the way, which is saying, OK, so you're claiming you want to decarbonise rapidly in the next few decades. Do your policies actually align with that? For example, historically speaking, coal-fired power plants have been retired at an average age of around 46. 46. If you want to be net zero by 2060, and you're building more coal-fired power plants now, then you're implying that those plants will be retired before they are used for their full lifespan. This obviously affects the economics of building them in the first place, doesn't it? Because you're saying that you will shut them down earlier than planned. Typically, with building this sort of power plant in this infrastructure project, you have a big outlay at the start, and then you make money to offset that later on in the future but you know, that's not necessarily going to be the case if you have to shut it down earlier than you would plan otherwise, so you need to be careful. Take a look at the fossil fuel companies. BP, for example, has pledged to cut its production of fossil fuel, but also it won't rule out further exploration for oil in the North Sea. If you're funding projects to explore fossil fuels that you don't think you'll be able to burn or sell, or to create infrastructure that you won't be able to use for as long as you'd think, then clearly your actions are not in line with your stated goals. So, for example, again, return to the UK. One of the policies that's supposedly on the to-do list, although not enacted yet for climate, is a ban on UK government investment in foreign projects for the exploration and extraction of fossil fuels. Why would our government, which claims to be committed to net zero, invest anything in in foreign companies and foreign people uh, exploring and extracting fossil fuels? It doesn't make any sense. Incidentally, just for good measure, I'll read a bit of what the Climate Action Tracker has to say about the UK. Quote, The onset of the COVID-19 crisis has had a severe impact on the UK economy and the government's commitment to build back greener has not been so far met by strong action. To date, only 2% of the economic recovery funds are allocated towards climate-related measures, compared to 30% of the EU's latest 2021-27 budget and the associated recovery package. Since legislating its 2015 net zero emissions target in 2019, the UK has been strengthening its announced suite of climate policies and encouraging development. However, according to the Committee on Climate Change, these announcements do not yet go far enough to put the UK on a path to achieve the 2050 net zero target. With the UK set to host the pivotal UN COP26 climate negotiations in November 2021, there is great impetus to show global leadership by bridging this policy gap. The Climate Action Tracker rates the UK as insufficient. In July 2020, as part of its COVID-19 economic recovery package, the government has announced a £3 billion investment in improving the energy efficiency of homes and public buildings. But this is far less than the £9.2 billion pledged for this purpose during the 2019 election campaign. Along with the £350 million investment in reducing emissions from heavy industry, these are the only significant climate-related investments in the recovery announced so far. The UK has stated it plans an additional round of spending later in the year, which will require a scaling up of commitments to fulfil the intent of its purported green recovery. Now, I'll spare you all what the Climate Action Track has to say about other countries, including perhaps your own, but you can, of course, look it up if you're interested to see what they have to say. So, obviously, pledges that add up to the actual target at hand are good news, and it's exciting that in the midst of this chaos, China and the EU are contemplating more climate action. But they're just words until sufficient action is taken to fulfil them. I mean, if you want to put a less optimistic spin on it, the fact that five years after Paris we still haven't got all the countries who signed up to it to even promise to do stuff that will fulfil it, let alone actually start reducing global emissions, pandemic aside, that's hardly a glorious beacon of progress, is it? And so we must track this climate action, and where our governments are not making policies that are sufficient to fulfil what they've promised, we have to say, what are you playing at? As many have pointed out, for China to actually achieve net zero by 2060 from where they are now, That's going to require some pretty transformative changes starting almost straight away so we should know pretty soon if they're serious. I want to finish up with a couple of observations. Number one is that a common piece of rhetoric you hear from people who don't want to act on climate change in the West is what about China? They emit more than us yada yada yada. Obviously this was always disingenuous. Just because someone commits murder doesn't mean we're justified in assault. Now it's even more ridiculous. China now has a very ambitious net zero target. So do we. Unless they're miles off their target and we're hitting ours, that complaint doesn't really hold water. The US and many other countries don't yet even have net zero targets, so who's really lagging behind here? Finally, you can obviously criticise China for a lot of things, from their human rights record domestically, to their historically environmentally destructive policies, through to foreign policy, the initial handling of COVID-19 pandemic and so on. I'm not going to get into any of that here or make any sort of moral geopolitical judgments because that's not really what this is about and I'm also not an expert on China at all. But what I would say is that there are a couple of obvious reasons that China is doing this that relate to its status as a country on the world stage. The first is that geopolitically coming out with a good reputation on climate change is good for China's image which has arguably taken a battering in recent months. It was notable that Xi Jinping made this announcement straight after Trump's speech at the UN. Whatever else you want to say about Trump, he's totally abdicated responsibility on climate change, which he doesn't even acknowledge as a real issue. And he's undone a great deal of environmental regulation during his time, uh, promising to support coal miners and letting the lead on renewables further be ceded to other nations. That's just historical fact, which you can't dispute, regardless of your politics. In this election, he has no net zero target. While Biden is at least talking about a 2050 target for the US, although I was also disappointed to see in the debate that he seemed to disavow the Green New Deal, even though on his website it says that he would like to support it. So Xi sees it as a way to take the lead from the US in international affairs. This is the take from the BBC, for example, quote, Xi Jinping's climate pledge at the UN minutes after President Donald Trump's speech is clearly a bold and well-calculated move, said Li Xiao, an expert on Chinese climate policy from Greenpeace Asia. It demonstrates Xi's consistent interest in leveraging the climate agenda for geopolitical purposes. Back in 2014, Mr. Xi and then US President Barack Obama came to a surprise agreement on climate change, which became a key building block of the Paris Agreement signed in December 2015. Mr. Xi has again delivered a surprise, according to Li Xiao. He said, quote, By playing the climate card a little differently, Xi has not only injected much needed momentum to global climate politics, but has presented an intriguing geopolitical question in front of the world. On a global, common issue, China has moved ahead regardless of the U.S. Will Washington now follow? End quote. My priority is living on a livable planet, so I'm not too fussed if this is done for geopolitical reasons, as long as it gets done. A bit like if a huge plan of space exploration. I'm sure, we only landed people on the moon in 1969 because of Cold War great power competitiveness, but at least we did it, and it was worthwhile progress. As well as the geopolitical point in terms of status, another very obvious point to make is that China has been playing the long game on sustainable energy. As they've grown their economy and their influence throughout the world, they have ensured that the resources of the future, things like lithium for batteries and the manufacturing capacity for solar cells and wind turbines, is substantial. The investment poured into making solar panels more cheap and efficient, has driven the costs of solar down massively which have in turn meant that it's now the cheapest form of power across much of the world, making it all the more likely to displace a good chunk of fossil fuels in the coming years. That's the solar industry that's growing at 23% a year at the moment. I mean, that's that madness. That's insane. As the world decarbonises and moves on to new fuel sources then, it's likely to be very good for China. This is the type of thing you accomplish, by the way, when you actually have long-term planning on how to be economically competitive, and when you look to the future and don't prop up dying industries like shale gas, or deny long-term issues like climate change, or the increasing expense of extracting fossil fuels. For the last two decades, China has been focusing on a lot of this stuff, while other countries have been obsessed with their own internal politics, or their own internal wranglings, or wars in the Middle East, or whatever it is. And it's resulted in a pretty impressive dominance in pretty much everything related to clean tech. This result was illustrated in a recent article in MIT Tech Review that summarized it in charts, so some of those statistics. 51% of the global sales of electric vehicles take place in China. 54% of the world's wind turbine assembly capacity is in China. 75% of the world's lithium-ion batteries, essential for EVs and the grid, with a large fraction of renewables, they're made in China. 70% of the world's solar panels are made in China. Most of that growth has occurred just during the last decade, while during that time the US output has hardly increased at all, and that of Japan and the EU has actually fallen. China has installed three times as much solar as the US since their massive investment into solar has helped its price to plummet by over 80% since 2010. Everyone talks about Tesla. They love Tesla as a big American success story for renewables, but the world's biggest manufacturer of batteries is a Chinese company, Contemporary Amperex Technologies Limited, or CATL. That's the company that makes the batteries for Tesla. Tesla is going to boost its stock price soon by announcing a million-mile battery that will likely be made in China. They're only just starting to do their own domestic manufacturing very recently. The world's biggest solar panel manufacturers are also in China. Graphite, which is an essential component in batteries and other electronics, 60% of that is made in China. Cobalt is widely used in consumer electronics, smartphones, electric cars, etc. There's not much in China, 60% of it is mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in generally appalling conditions, by the way but over half of the mines of cobalt in the DRC are owned by China. One was bought from a company based in Arizona a couple of years back. China is amongst the top five countries in terms of producing lithium for batteries, and is buying up more mines in Australia and South America. Of the 136 lithium-ion battery plants in the pipeline to 2029 that are going to be constructed, 101 are based in China. According to the chief executive of USA Rare Earth, China controls the processing of pretty much all of the critical minerals, whether it's rare earth metals, lithium, cobalt, or graphite. You get my point. China has positioned itself very well to profit from the energy revolution, from how cheap renewables are, and from countries dealing with climate change. This doesn't even have to be out of any great altruism or love for the planet. It's just knowing the way that the wind is blowing, and the potential for renewables with this investment to become the next oil an oil that you can domestically manufacture if you have access to these assets of the future. We know, of course, that this will help deal with the smog problem, and that's a clear co-benefit for China. But more importantly, fossil fuels are a dying industry. Sure, they may not be running out in the way that peak oil doomers were concerned about in the 1970s, although, of course, eventually they will run out. Instead, though, it simply gets more and more expensive to extract them. There's a reason we talk about fracking now, about drilling deeper, even under the Arctic Ocean or Antarctica. There's a reason we talk about extracting oil from shale and tar sands, which were never considered as sources before. They weren't considered because it was less profitable to do. Look at the collapse in shale companies in the midst of COVID-19 and how they were all propped up by masses of debt. None of these companies was making a profit because it's not profitable to do this. The energy return on energy invested is the metric for how profitable it is to extract fossil fuels. How much energy do you get out from the energy you have to put in to extract, refine and process them? Most of the cheap fossil fuels are gone. We've burnt them. This was always going to happen. Anyone with a lick of foresight could have seen it. China positioned themselves to make renewables cheaper than fossil fuels, especially solar, by investing heavily in those industries after a lot of early work had been done by, for example, government research labs around the world and subsidies on solar in countries like Germany beforehand. Now increasingly, Extracting fossil fuels will become less and less profitable while renewables plummet in price. It's clear where you want to be in that sort of environment. So we talked about China leveraging its soft power in the world and whether this would help the transition to renewables. Clearly, they also have an incentive to do that. If you're China, why would you want the energy for the next billion or so people to industrialise to come from, say, Russia's natural gas or oil from the Middle East? You want it to come from solar and batteries and wind turbines which you manufacture. Then you're guaranteeing a new market for your own products. Solar panels have to be replaced every 25 years. Wind turbines and batteries too need to be replaced regularly. If the world is generally going to get a substantial fraction of its power, its ever-growing demands for energy from these sources, and you manufacture them, then it's gravy train time. So in light of that, Is it really that surprising that China would set its own ambitious climate target and encourage others to do the same? They'll be making most of the kit that will make global net zero even possible. Indeed, a recent economic analysis published by Carbon Brief suggested that if China does follow through on its pledge, its GDP will actually be 5% greater than it would be otherwise in 2060. Yeah, they'll invest up front, but the extra energy efficiency measures they will have taken, the investment that will have occurred in their industries to make this possible, as well as the reduced dependence on foreign imports for oil, coal, and natural gas as fossil fuels, these are all going to feed into that. So it's a win-win with this major upfront government investment. China will be richer and cleaner in the future. That's why I'm inclined to believe that this pledge is not just hot air, because it makes sense. If you're annoyed about why you're not getting a bigger slice of the pie... I suggest you call your representative and ask what the hell they've been doing for the last 20 years. Ask them why they haven't invested in any kind of long-term future planning to benefit from an industry like solar, where installations are growing by 20% a year, and are instead focusing on things like coal, which has continued to fall in price as the number of people using it is declining. Peak coal seems to now have been in 2013 or so. It's declined since then. Clearly it's good news that China has made this pledge, And I sincerely hope for the good of all of us and for the good of the planet that they actually follow through on it and that it inspires an awful lot of other climate action from other actors all around the world as well. But with all this said, I do want to end on a cautionary note, and it comes with respect to targets and goals and pledges and international agreements and so on, because there was another report that came out recently. This was with respect to biodiversity. Because climate is my focus professionally, sometimes other aspects of the human impact on the environment get unfairly short shrift, and that's not fair. The truth is that humans, not just through climate change but also through the destruction of natural habitats, are causing the extinction of many other species and harming the natural ecosystem, which supports us in many other ways. At Japan, in 2010, the world's governments met, via the UN, to agree on 20 targets to slow down the loss of the natural world. The Aichi Targets. Of those 20 targets that the world's governments agreed to sign up to, we have not met a single one. Six of them have been classed as partially achieved. Let's go down the list very, very quickly then. Many still don't know what biodiversity is. Many governments haven't incorporated it into their planning and development strategies. Many of the world's governments still subsidise activities that damage the environment and biodiversity to the tune of $500 billion a year for these activities. Governments have not implemented plans to reduce the impact of natural resource extraction on the environment. Our demand for resources has grown, and so the report suggests the environmental impact is far in excess of ecological limits. Deforestation rates have decreased compared to last decade, but only by a third. We're still cutting down the world's forests at a very quick rate. In some areas, it's accelerating. Wildernesses and wetlands, they're declining. Human uses are fragmenting rivers, so habitats are not being protected. Overfishing is worse than ever globally, although there has been progress in some regions. Many fisheries are damaging habitats for fish. In landscapes under human management for timber and agriculture, biodiversity is continuing to decline. Pollution is still driving a lot of biodiversity loss. Plastic in the oceans, major issue. The coral reefs are not being protected. In many regions, they're dying. The same is true of many other ecosystems vulnerable to ocean acidification and climate change. Species, on average, are still moving closer to extinction, although at a slower rate than if we'd done nothing. The genetic diversity of the plants that we cultivate is getting worse and worse, closer to monocultures with just one strain. Many farmed animals are losing their wild relatives to extinction and becoming less genetically diverse, and hence, potentially, less sustainable to farm. The species that are farmed are declining in number. Ecosystems which provide vital services to humanity, such as water or health-related services, are in continued decline. The aim to restore 15% of degraded ecosystems to contribute to reducing climate change hasn't been met, and the traditional knowledge of local communities and indigenous people that's relevant for sustainably managing the natural world is, according to the UN, still not being used by the world's governments. The six targets that have been partially achieved include those on protected areas and invasive species, governments did not manage to protect 17% of terrestrial and inland water areas, or 10% of marine habitats, but they did protect 44% of vital biodiverse areas, which is an increase from 29% in 2000. They've also eradicated around 200 invasive species on islands, which was one of the goals that was set, and actions have saved 48 identified species from extinction, which is another positive in other words, yes, it's very, very possible to make a bunch of ambitious pledges about what you're going to do. The world's government signed up to achieve a bunch of very ambitious pledges at IC in 2010 for biodiversity, and essentially failed to achieve most of them, and actually went backwards in some areas. I'm more optimistic about climate action because I think that governments do take it more seriously, but it's important to remember that global CO2 emissions have still increased pretty much every single year, since the 1700s now with the only exceptions being big economic depressions or disruptions to the fossil fuel supply. So I hope that China does fulfil its new climate promise, and that other countries also ratchet up their ambition as part of the Paris Agreement. I hope the world comes up with a set of targets that actually adds up to their promise. And I hope that the world can produce a detailed plan on how it will get to net zero, and that everyone from national governments to corporations can produce detailed plans on how they will do so as well. And then, For the good of all of us, for the good of the climate that we live in, for the good of our health, for the good of our economies in the future and the sustainability of the way that we live, we have to make sure that they actually do it. In the words of the king then, to actually achieve these goals, it's going to take a little less conversation and a little more action. Thank you for listening to this Thermonuclear Takes episode of Physical Attraction where I have talked very quickly about global climate politics. You can get involved with the show. You can go to physicspodcast.com. There you'll find the contact form. You can address me, any comments, questions, concerns that you have about what you've heard, anything you'd like to hear about in the future. Send them via the contact form. Other ways to get in touch, of course, there's Twitter, physicspod, Facebook, physical attraction, and there are plenty of other ways to get involved with us. If you want to support the show, one of the best things you can do is to leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, letting us know how you find the show and presumably helping boost us in some unknown algorithm somewhere. Uh, another thing that you can do, of course, is to support us financially via the PayPal link that's on physicspodcast.com. You can go to patreon.com slash and there you will find loads of bonus episodes. You'll find right to the end of our SoftBank series has already been released there, along with some bonus episodes that aren't available anywhere else and quite a bit more on climate change, actually. Some of the forthcoming Climate 201 episodes have also been released earlier there. The deal with that is you can support for as little money as you want, and you'll only be charged when a new paid bonus episode comes out, which is very infrequently. So at the moment, it's a, it's a pretty free deal to get more episodes if you're interested. But I, but I do appreciate everyone who has already signed up to help there. Uh, you're helping keep this as a slightly more sustainable project than it is at the moment. Of course, the best thing you can do to support us, though, is to tell as many other people who might be interested in the issues that we're covering and in the explanations that we're giving um, about the show. And you can help us improve always. Feedback on that contact form is one of the best ways you can do that. Until next time, then, please take care.